everyone. Welcome along to episode six of the Motor Focus Model Podcast. I'm Aaron Newman. Dimitri Camino is with me again as per usual. And didn't we have a very special guest this week? And the mailbox, I think, melted, to be honest with you. Yeah. Hi, uh, Nooms. And um, yeah, looking forward to the chat with uh, Kim this morning. Like you say, we do have some really good questions there for him. We've got some bad ones as well, it's got to be said. Oh, answer all questions, good, bad, or <laughs> You've got to be careful, he is listening. It's great to have Kim Jones with us on this edition of the Motor Focus Model podcast. And uh, Dimitri, we could talk all day about uh, Kim's racing uh, exploits over the years. He's, he's got the dogs. We're actually on a Zoom call here. You can only hear the audio, but Kim... I know that our listeners can't see who is with you on your couch while we're doing this chat, but who's the little pooch that's cuddled up next to you now? That's my expert advisor. You know how Percat has has his dog with him? Well, yeah. this is mine. Right. And, and the previous model to this one, when we used to get the slot cars out, used to run around in circles and chase the slot cars, much to my grandkids' amazement. <laughs> well, she wants to go back to her mother. Oh, no, so she's, she's made a cameo. That's it. Finished. The quick cameo and she's yeah, out of it. Hey, Kim, great to have you with us, mate. I know that there's probably a, a whole pile that we could chat with you about of, of your time in the sport, but we wanted to focus in on the model element and you're our first uh, celebrity collector. So uh, quite often you get asked what got you into motor racing to start with, and you've probably answered that a million times, but where did the model car collecting side of things come into it for you? Because from what we saw in the video that the Motor Focus team put up during the week that you sent through, you got a handy little collection there, my friend. Yeah, I have. I've got lots of different things. And really, I suppose, you know, I know it's hard to believe because I'm so old, but at one stage I was a kid. <laughs> and, and, and I wish I had all the cars that I had when I was a kid. I remember Corgi made a... Elfin, uh, sorry, a Lotus, a land set, and it had a Volkswagen um, ute with a trailer on it, and then you had a Lotus, a land, and the Lotus, a land is very special because it has like a chassis underneath, and the chassis used to come off and you used to get two bodies, and, and it was a fantastic thing, And um, but I don't have any of those left. Um, and so what really happened was um, Bianti and Trevor Young, is where it pretty much started again. Um, I struck up a friendship with Trevor and then he become a partner in our motorsport program. And uh, really it was around the time probably of the Audis and I have lots and lots of 134, 143rd Audis and then 118th. And then I got to a point where I thought, uh, what am I going to do now? And I just started collecting all the sorts of things that I love. Um, one of my favourite cars is a early Formula One Ferrari. I have a Mercedes-Benz Transporter, um, which is a, quite a unique thing. And then I have that in 118th and 143rd as well. And the 118th one actually has all the tie-down points and chains and everything on it. And it's, it's quite unique. I have a... Um, I have a, a GMC um, auto union engine that looks like you could take it off the blocks, bolt it in the car, put some fuel in it and start it. It's just, it, it amazes me the workmanship that go into it. Like most people I've built to me and model cars and all those sorts of things and very difficult task to do that. I've, my wife goes cook because she's, I'm actually building uh, laser cut wooden 3D puzzles which are cars 
um, and they they just go together because with toothpicks and all sorts of bits and pieces. But she says, oh, it's just a puzzle. And I said, no, it's not. It's a model car. She said, oh, it might look like that, but it's just a puzzle. <laughs> um, but, all, but all those sorts of things. And then you, you look at uh, like this Ferrari that I'm talking about. And for the older people, the temperature gauge used to have a capillary tube that was filled with ether. And when that used to get hot, it used to make the needle move. But what they used to do is they used to run a copper wire or pipe around the outside of it with little copper wire around that. And this has actually got the full deal in it in one eighteenth, um, and, and it's about four hundred and fifty dollars. And for somebody to sit there and put all that together is is, is amazing. But to go down the room and look at the cars, um, all the things I like the McLaren, the early McLarens, and uh, like the sports car McLarens. I have lots of sports cars, uh, Le Mans type cars, not so much the modern stuff, but the earlier stuff, uh, Lanciers and bits and pieces like that. Um, obviously, all the V8 supercars I have, uh, as many as we can get. I actually have some quite unique ones because we have a very talented sticker person at our place. And uh, when he's not that busy, I get him to do the cars that actually haven't been made that we have, um, which drives him insane. But they're unique. And, and the other thing that I've got that's quite unique, I'm a little disappointed, is is an amalgam cars. And I have Atten Senna's uh, black John Player Special Lotus. Um, I have a Ferrari, Schumacher's Ferrari, which I have the matching steering wheel to go with that. Um, and then I have the, one of the early uh, Audi cars. But when you take them off the board to put them into a case, the wheels don't really stay on and all those sorts of things. Yes, they're a beautiful model, um, they're ma- but they're made to sit on the board and not to be played with. As I used to tell my grandson, um, okay, model cars, take them out of the box, put them on the shelf, don't touch them, just look at them, which uh, is about what it's at. I was going to say, have the grandkids followed the advice of look, don't touch? Yeah, very much so. Not so much with the slot cars, but very much so with the uh, with the models. And uh, actually, it's quite funny. My wife, Fran, has always said, it, you know, she goes crook because I have all this stuff. And she said, when you die, how am I going to get rid of it? I'm just going to let the grandkids sit on the floor and play with them all. And Andrew and Will Hall actually had a heart attack. And they're like, no, you're not. Uh, we're going <laughs> to sort this out because if he's gone, you have no idea what you have here. But uh, over a period of time, we will sort it out. But the grandkids won't be playing with them, I don't think. Uh, I was going to say, have you got um, – is your collection at home? Have you got some of it at work, at the office, at BJR? Have you got a special room, a couple of cabinets? What's your, what's your go-to setup? Well, so what happened was in our, in our old house, in, in our life with motorsport, because our working life was so volatile and we didn't know from year to year what was going on, we lived in the same house for a long, long time um, and there was nowhere really to, to display them. Uh, Fran used to let me have one cabinet that I used to rotate cars in, but most of them used to live in the wardrobe. And then when we built the new house, I actually built a room downstairs and um, it's got shelves and stuff in it. There's cabinets um, and there's a big space on the floor where we set the slot cars up. So it's got its own designated area down there. And um, I actually got some trophies out that I've won over the years and in different bits and pieces and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but it's up to me to keep, the floor clean and keep the place tidy and do all that sort of stuff she she doesn't go down there and uh it refers to it as a toy room 
um, <laughs> and actually it refers to my march as, as my uh, billy card or something like that. So <laughs> That's a fast billy card. Well, it is. Actually, when you talk about billy carts, I've got, I've got two billy carts that I built for my grandkids that they run in the Australian Billy Cart Championship at um, Korowa each year. And uh, they've, they've won the last three or four years. And how it all started was Graham Wincup, which is Jamie Wincup's uncle, he built a billy cart and one day it was raining and Kobe and I sat down in the shed and built a wooden billy cart and I happened to put it on Facebook. He said, you call that a billy cart. So he put his up, which looked like a TCMG um, carved out of wood. And so for the next 12 months, I, uh, I actually built this billy cart that was all top secret and no one knew anything about it. And we went to Korowa and, and smashed him in the race. So from that year onwards, I think for the last five years, it's sort of been going backwards, forwards and going backwards and forwards. And so now both Eli and Kobe race, but it's amazing what you learn in a different vein of what you're doing. Um, that, that's quite interesting. And, and sort of the model car things like that as well. You know, I, I see different things. I used to, when I used to travel overseas, um, there was different places I went and I'd see something and I'd go, oh yeah, I'll grab that or, or no, I won't. Or um, I'll come home and tell Trev what I wanted and, and he'd try and find it for me. It's it, getting back to Bianti and Trevor. It's quite interesting. He was a, a big buyer of mini champ stuff. And when Audi won all the super touring car championships around the world, mini champs built a set of the, of the, all the cars that had won that championship super touring car championship. And it actually had the Rothmans car from South Africa, which you weren't allowed to do, but because it was a set our car was number three in that year. So I got the third set and the first set and Trevor went off his brain cause he wants number one of everything um, and didn't get it. And anyway, I was, I was over there one day in Perth scratching around looking through all his stuff. I said, Hey, what are you doing with number one of that set? And he goes, what? I always get number one. I said, it's funny cause they must've misprinted cause I got number one and number three. And he goes, I know. That's how come I got another number one. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I suppose if you've got it, the moral to the story is if you've got enough influence, you can have what you want. When you're the boss, you're the boss. Hey, Dem, I know there's something that you wanted to ask him from uh, probably the early 2000s of watching V8 supercars that popped up from a few people might have suggested this, but uh, uh, it's a... Some would suggest that Kim doesn't have any friends, but back in that period, he had one special friend, didn't he? Yeah, like I was going to ask you, Kim, I remember many years ago watching the supercar telecast and they'd, they'd put a camera in front of you every now and then and interview you and you're a bit hot under the collar, I guess, and you're always referring to someone like that bloke or your mate. Uh, what was all that about? So what V8 supercars were doing was they were saying, you weren't allowed to personally attack anybody or slander anybody or say anything um, if you were part of a team or part of the group or whatever. So if you were under their control, you weren't allowed to. So I sort of came up with a little ploy that I have a mate out the back and he told me. So it wasn't actually my point of view. It was somebody else's point of view. So I was sort of circumnavigating the, the rule about not, not blasting off at people. Um, so it, it was, and actually it was quite funny because I remember at, um, at Ipswich one day I was going through that scenario 
And I looked and I said, my mate out the back, and I turned around and KB was, Kevin Bartlett was leaning over the fence, <laughs> waving at me. And I said, there's my mate. <laughs> so so that's what it was all about. It was just to circumnavigate the rules, but still be able to say how you felt. And, and the, one of the problems with, with motorsport, and, and I know we're diversing from, from what we're talking about with the model cars, but is it becomes a little bit clinical and, and people don't want to say things. And, but it is a very emotional thing. And, and you know, it's, it's what, it, what it goes on. And, and I'm sure that, you know, when I open a new box and I take a model car out of the box, if the aerial's broken or... And actually, this is something else that Trevor taught me. At one stage, I was collecting, which I don't have anymore, Indy cars. And uh, I got an Indy car. I think it was... I think it was one of the Al Unzer cars. Anyway, I opened it up and I pulled it out and I'm looking at it and I really like open wheelers and all that sort of thing. And I turned it around and it had two silver chrome wheels on one side and two black wheels on the other side. And I rang Trevor and I said, hey, you need to send me another one. This, is, this, is, this sucks. It's not right. And he said, you know, the ones that are imperfect are actually worth more than the other ones. And I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, because they, there's not that many of them. And I go, right, okay. Okay, I'll keep this one, but send me another one with you because I don't like it with black wheels on one side and silver on the yeah. other. Yeah. <laughs> now, being a long-term collector, um, what do you think about, you know, you've seen the sort of the level of detail sort of grow over the years and has and that been a, a real um, pl- a positive for you? Uh, look, yeah, it, it, in a way. So how many people actually take them out of the box and put them on display, not, you know, not in the box. Because if you, depends what you're doing with them. If you're collecting them because you like them and you want to look at them, you take them out of the box and put them on the shelf. Now I have lots and lots of models. All my 143rds are still in the box. I don't, I don't take those out, but they're worth more to be unboxed. So I've got a container at work and, and it's got one side of the container is just all my empty boxes. So you've got to store them somewhere. I can't remember the last time. Uh, yes, I do because uh, I got a new Lancia sports car from Le Mans and I wanted to look at the engine. So I took the engine cover off it and looked at it. But very rarely do you open the opening parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's very difficult the quality control is, is, is a very difficult thing, I think partly because of where they're coming from um, and the cost base, you know, it, it's, a, it's sort of a balance. Um, there's certain brands that do it better than other brands, mm-hmm. um, but it depends what you're looking for and how it is. You know, the, like I said, my Ferrari, it turned up here. It didn't have any wheels on it. It didn't have the seat in it. It didn't have the fuel tank. And yet, actually, you know, it has, it has wire wheels on it. And each wire, each wire has a spoke, has a nipple on the end of it. And, and, and just the attention to detail and putting that together, putting the wheels on, doing the knock-ups off, um, all that stuff took it to another level. Yeah. But you look at that car it has downdraft Webers on it and you would think that they were real, you know, like it's just that, that is craziness. And the amalgam ones, it's a bit smoke and mirrorsy, you know, like you don't, 
I haven't had a look at any of them 118th, but the bigger cars, which I have, they're not, the detail isn't as you would expect for a $7,000 US model. Yeah. Um, I wasn't paying that for them. I, it was part of a deal that I had going. Um, yeah. But I don't know whether I would actually go out and buy one of those. There's better things that you can buy. And and now the big change, I think, is the size, like the 112 cars and stuff like that. I was actually talking to someone the other day and um, he's a journalist and he's a bit quirky, but he has a, he has a 112 scale Porsche. And he said, when I die, they can put my ashes inside the Porsche and they can sit me on the shelf. And I'm like, that's a bit morbid, you know, like the wind blows and you'll be all over the place. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it's a, it, it, you know, people, people do crazy things. I, there's a guy that I know went with, when Jack Brabham went over, the, some of his ashes were put in at Goodwood and uh, he flew over there with it and they had the hole and everything ready and they were ready to pour Jack into the hole. And Just as they started to pour, the wind blew and Jack jumped up all over them and went everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't know how much of him went in the hole, but anyway, oh, no. the, the, the thought was right. But to have somebody be put into a model car, it's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird deal. And I don't know how the suspension work. I remember carrying, taking my dad's ashes to Holbrook. That's where he was from. And, and he sat on my knee all the way out there. And by the time we got there, it was quite heavy. Like all he'd done is taken the water out really. And um, so maybe all this, you'd have to beef up the suspension so that it didn't collapse over time. Anyway. Yeah. Now, I've, I've got a little brain teaser for you. Yep. Uh, we often talk about the secondhand market of model cars. Yes. So what do you think is the most expensive uh, Brad Jones racing model? And, and whichever one it is, Divi's probably got 50 of them tucked away as well, by the way. Well, he's hoping he has. <laughs> he's probably not the only one that's got a few tucked away. Um, I reckon it's the Caterpillar car. Correct. Of Andrew. Yeah. It was it was a development series car back in from 2012 and um, 312 were made and Easily uh, fetching around six hundred dollars these days. Nice. I have, a, I have a few of those. Yeah, funny that. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably why there's a shortfall. The the yeah. other one to mention uh, would be uh, Nick Perkett's car from 2017 Australian Grand Prix. Yep. The uh, the quality car, I think we called that one, and uh, that can sort of fetch five hundred dollars these days already. Yeah. <laughs> Go on there. <laughs> He's got three of them. <laughs> no, no. Look, it, it, it's amazing what people want and why. And then it, you know, you guys are are obviously into it, and so am I. And and I spend a bit of time doobing around looking for different things. Um, you know, I found a bluebird of Donald Campbell's that ran at Lake Air, and one of our early memories is um, that car was sponsored by Esso. And it came around all the SO service stations, and I remember it coming to Albury. Um, and so I scratched around, scratched around, and I finally found one in, in England in reasonable condition um, and got it. But the, the price of things on the internet, it's, it, it's crazy what, who does what. And I would have thought that, in my mind, uh, some of the A4 Audis um, mm -hmm. would have been quite valuable to do that because of the appeal worldwide of, of the super touring cars at the time. Um, 
but obviously that's not the case. But the real cars are still holding pretty good value. I think there's, isn't there one of them pulled apart at your place? Well, we've got two. So there's the one in the museum, which yeah. is actually probably the most expensive one. That was a Frank Bieler car from Europe that Bradley used. Uh, and then we have a, <laughs> not that it's any, we have a Bincliffe body, two-wheel uh, two drive body shell. And um, when the Germans, when the English stopped racing Audis, the Germans sent all the stuff that they had, which was two 20-foot containers full of parts. And it's quite funny because the um, Helmut Potch, who's the spare parts man at Audi Sport, what Audi Sport do is after seven years, they crush everything because they figure after seven years, they don't want it anymore. So now that there's a bit of a, a comeback of, of that stuff, he rings me and he goes, hey, Kim, have you got this? And I'm like, yep. How much was it new? And he told mm -hmm. me what it is. So I just triple the price in Deutschmarks or, or Euro. <laughs> and he goes, you know how much it was new? I said, you just told me. Yeah, of course I do. How many do you have on the shelf there? And he goes, none. I said, well, I have four. <laughs> do you want it or not? Are you just wasting my time? What's going on? Um, so, yeah, we have a lot of parts. Um, I, I don't know at what point is the right point to sell that stuff. Um, but they're a very good car. I was actually talking to somebody about it the other day, and um, I remember we talking about technology and the way things are moving forward, and I know we're jumping around all over the place. Um, but Bosch, when we had the customer, we were customers, so we didn't get the latest and greatest. But we're about three years behind the technology of the electronics in the cars. Um, and but the factory had the latest stuff and you go over there and you watch what they're doing and, and, and away it goes and you go, wow, I can't wait to get that stuff, but you have to wait three years. So, But the, all that stuff moving forward is, is a great thing. Um, the, the model car thing, do you ever think, let me ask a question, do you ever think that it'll get to the point where you'll be able to 3D model something to a, a standard that once you paint it and put the signs on it and everything, it'll be... At, at the level sort of where we're at now? Oh, look, I, I think the problem is, the, like you say, the painting and, and that, that last bit of detail, deckling and all that sort of stuff. I, I think printing bodies and parts is, is pretty much already there. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, how do people then take that and finish it off to have the, the detail, you know, that quality of finish that they're used to buying. Yeah, and, and I know exactly what you're saying because like, like my James Hunt, McLaren and, and Senna's, um, Senna's Formula 3 car and stuff like that, like I've actually had made through our sticker department all the Marlboro signs and all the cigarette signage, um, the, the Lotuses and things like that that you can't do and it just it lifts it to the next level. So I, I understand where you're saying but... Uh, there's a place in England that you can get all these sticker kits and they make lots and lots of sticker kits, but then it's how you apply them and how long they last. And, you know, I stopped yeah. making plastic models because the glue in my vintage was never that good. So after about five or six years, uh, they'd all start to collapse and fall apart. Yeah. Just thinking too, Kim, in terms of the BJR cars that have been made over time, obviously the Audis and the supercars, I think, there's a question a bit later on from some of our, our fans, but you guys have raced so many different cars over the years, the Oscars, the NASCARs, the Lotus production car, 
the Starion Mitsubishis. Is there anything that is from the March? The March. The March. The March. Well, it goes without saying. I didn't even need to say it because it goes without saying. I've been uh, trying to talk the people in, at Spark into doing one through through Richard, but uh, not a Kim Jones version though. No, but I've, I have the perfect car for them to model off. Exactly. Yeah. And I have the ability to be able to paint it blue when it's finished, let me tell you. Yes, I'm sure you've got <laughs> ready to go. What, what's the BJR car that hasn't been made or can't be made or that you don't have in the collection that you would really love to have? <sighs> NASCAR? Oscar? Well, somebody made Bradley a, uh, a uh, NASCAR like it was a model kit, and but they made it to to be our our NASCAR, which would be pretty cool because um, that was the first Hendrix car to ever be sold out of Hendrix. Um, we had a very good relationship with Ray Everingham, who was working there at the time, um, and he he sold us the car. Uh, he asked us a lot of questions. We either run it at night time or daytime or all these things, and and we told him. He said, "Okay, this is a perfect car for you." And we got it here and we put it on the track and we we're practicing in the sunlight in the afternoon. And it didn't matter what we did. We couldn't make that thing hook up. And anyway, I rang him and got him out of bed and I said, it's all a piece of shit. I can't make it work. And he goes, um, when were you running it? I said, in the daylight in the afternoon. He said, oh, you told me you race at night. And I said, yeah, we do. He said, well, when's the race? I said, tonight, but I'm panicking. I said, no, you'll be right. It'll be, it'll be good. He was right. It was good. I don't know what happened. It maybe maybe it didn't light the bright light or whatever. But um, <laughs> once it turned dark, it, that thing was a rocket, uh, and then away it went. So um, it, you never. But that that'd be a good car to do. Um, what else would be a good car? I'd, I'd like one of my Oz cars because that was really that was a good time. You know, we were spending a lot of time there, and I think that that just goes to prove that hard work, understanding what's going on, being able to see the whole track so you don't have to listen to the driver. That helped. <laughs> um, um, but, but we sort of, you know, maybe, maybe one of the Oz cars. Yeah. It, it would, be, would be nice. But well, the thing, you've got five championships to choose from, so it's not a, a shortage of riches there. <laughs> yeah. I'll just point out that somebody, somebody different was second and third every year, so it wasn't like the same people were dominating. Well, the other thing is that there's different liveries. Obviously, there was the, the VL that you started with, which was green, this horrendous green. Uh, then that became the Cooper Tools VL. Then you got a VN. There was Castrol GP50 livery. There was the white livery when that... At the end, ended. yeah. Um, and then with an NASCAR, that, that first, that Lumina from Hendrix had the... Atl was it Atlantis removals? Was yeah, had, had Atlantis on it. And then it was Goodyear at the end. Oh, Kmart came out Goodyear at the end. Yeah, so you've got um, some liveries to choose from there. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, it's a funny story. When we, when we had the green car uh, and the first race was crazy, I remember we came into the pits and um, we'd never watched a NASCAR race. We didn't know what was going on. So the guy went under the diff and jacked the back of the car up. We changed the back wheels and he raced around the front and went on the cross member and jacked it up. Somebody from Calder came down and said, what are you country idiots doing? And we said, why? What's the problem? And he said, well, those little things on the side, that's to jack one side up and do one side and then do the other side. We're like, all oh, right, okay, someone should get his heads up before. But we, we had the green car and um, the first time it was on track was at qualifying and it didn't work very well. And then the next race, Janie came along and said, look, 
I'll organise some sponsorship through Alan Mance and you can have Bob Jane Tmarts and Alan Mance Holden on the car. And we're like, oh, that's really good of you, Bob. We'll, we'll do that. So I think the next five or six races we won, which if you won, I think it was five or six races in a row, you got a bonus. And oh, it was... I've talked was, about this. It was four and you got up to three and you were going for four. I no, think. no, no. We won four. Right. And, and, and I think we won five in a row. And we went to Bob and said, okay, give us some money. And he said, no, it's in one season. And, and so we won three races at the end of one and the other races at the start of the next one. And then as soon as we pointed out what we were doing, he pulled the pin on it. Um, but the Alan Mance thing, halfway through that season, we were winning all the time. And um, Bob, as Bob does, came up and said, listen, you two idiots, you're winning too much money. So I'm not going to give you the sponsorship anymore. You got enough, you're winning enough to be able to keep going. And we're like, Oh, that's a bit tough. So you leave the signs on. Oh, yeah, Bob. You know, he was the boss and that's what you did. And uh, anyway, we were racing around there. And it was like 10 years later, I bumped into Alan Mance. And uh, I said, look, I really appreciate you helping us with the Oscar program and all that. And he goes, oh, no worries. I said, it was a bit of a shame that Bob shut it down. He said, big pardon? I'm like, uh, well, after two races, Bob reckoned we were winning enough so he wouldn't give us the sponsorship money. He said, you're kidding. He said, I paid right till the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> so we were actually an income screen, screen for Bob Jane at that point. <laughs> just didn't know it until 10 years later. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But anyway, motorsport's full of that stuff. There's plenty of those sorts of stories, and I'm sure that's a podcast for another time. Dim, yeah. our listeners have had a pile of questions for, for Kim. Do you want to fire off with the first one? Yeah, sure. Uh, David uh, Heller has uh, sent in a question saying he loves the podcast and he wants to know what Kim's highlights of being involved in the Supercar Series would be. Highlights in the Supercar Series? Mm. Uh, one that pops to mind was when we finished second to Longhurst and, um, and Scaife at Bathurst. I can't remember the year. 2000. But, but the, the car... Our car was really quick and we were catching Scaife at the end of the race, but it was very tight on fuel. And I remember Longhurst came up to me three or four times and said, why don't we both back off? Because, you know, we know fuel's tight. We both need to get the end. And we're like, we're not tight on fuel, dude. <laughs> you know, like we're, we're, we're out there to race and uh, we're going to beat you. If you're going to run out of fuel, that's your problem, not ours. And I think when we finished the race, we had like a thimble full of fuel in the tank. Um, but that, that, that was probably any time that you can do well at Bathurst is, is a great thing. You know, when Bradley and, and Clellan got on the podium, the only thing I regret there is that we sort of haven't really won a race there. You know, I think we've finished second more times than, than anybody else, but you know, that's, that's, that's what you get. It's, um, that, that was a very good thing. Andrew winning the championship, that, that was a good thing. Um, but but life has changed in all that. It, you know, it, it started off that it was about our passion to go racing and win races, where now it's very, very much about the staff and the people. And, you know, it, it, I feel sorry for the guys that have got to go away now in this turbulent time that we're living in um, and be away for all this time from their families and all that sort of stuff. And for the people that don't know, there's a... There's a thing going on in Albury, Wodonga right now um, where people from Wodonga can't come across to Albury. So 
some of these people have family. They live in Albury, some of our staff, and they have family in Wodonga. So the grandparents can't come over and help the wives with the kids and all those sorts of things. But there's no way that we could go racing the way we used to go racing with an open trailer and, um, and a panel van and, and sleeping in garages and doing all those sorts of things because you just can't do it at that level. So it's really changed from being a passion to being a business and the most important part of that business is the staff. Mm. Um, one of the uh, questions that popped up, uh, the segue from that is probably uh, one of your previous staff members who will be remembered forever is Jason Richards. Bradley Jarvis asks, what was it like to work with Jason Richards. Now, I did briefly as a PR man in his Tasman days, and he was always late to everything. Did he improve when he went to Aubrey? Um, no, not really. <laughs> but, but, so you just manage that. So you put somebody with him. But look, Jace was such, he was such a focused person. And, and you know, it, the end of it was terrible. But the things he did, like I remember him getting in the car at Darwin when he was quite ill. Mm. And I think he was second or third fastest on hard tyres and other people had been on soft. And he got out of the car and I remember going to the, because I kept an eye on him all the time, and I kept, went to the truck and, uh, and he was in the truck and he was doubled over. And I said, Jace, what are you doing? And, and he goes, oh, he said, oh, I'm not good. And I said, I'll go and get Dr. Carl. And he said, no, don't go and get Dr. Carl. He'll take his license off me. He'll take my license off me. He won't let me drive. And I'm like, Jace, you've got to do something. But it improved, it improved over, over a period of time, but you, it was probably more managed than that. But everything was about, I remember coming out of Homebush one day with him. He, he wasn't driving at this stage, but he was very sick. And I was trying to get him out of there about, 2.30 in the afternoon to go back and have a rest. And he spent an hour signing autographs outside of the circuit. You know, that was just what he was like. He was, he, he was a great guy and, um, you know, and, and that's why we have a JR star on everything we run. You know, like he's still part of, of our group and always will be. Um, but every, look, all drivers have quirky, quirky things that, that uh, that they do or or have or ways and, and and whether everybody understands what they are or not what they are, um, it, it it it's it, you just to be at that level and to be able to do that stuff you have to be a little bit different and how you describe different is is relevant to everybody I suppose. Definitely, uh, Peter Hawkins has got the next question. Uh, can you ask Kim, does he think the rules of supercars are fair and allow for an even playing field? And he asks this because we're generally seeing the same teams dominating. And that's, that's obviously on the whole. The last few rounds have, have mixed it up with the way that the tyre situations work. But um, I guess in, in all motor racing, it will never be fair for everyone. Uh, there's never an even chance for everybody. But clearly the two big powerhouse teams of the last couple of years have become even more powerhouse and taken more of the the trophies and the podium positions than anyone else? Um, look, lots of things change. Um, and, and I think what's happened this since the, since the rebirth of where we're at is that the data has been restricted. And so that's made it a little bit different for who can do what and how the options are different. 
but the cream will always rise to the top. Um, and unfortunately, it's a money game. And if you have the money to have the resource, you know, I remember one of my friends um, when I was working for Bob Jane, when I first started out, went and worked in Formula One. And he was a good general all-round mechanic. Um, he wanted to be in Formula One, so away he went, joined Formula One. Um, I spoke to him and he goes, I'm in charge of between the back of the block and the front of the gearbox. I said, so what do you do? He said, well, I measure cup, clutch plates and bits and pieces and, and all that sort of stuff. I said, is that very rewarding? He said, no, not really. He said, but it's better than being in charge of the brake pads. <laughs> uh, so, so and, and that's a little bit what supercars is like. But now because we can't look at all the data and it has to go back. I, I, I'm from an era where, you know, like I said before, watching Bradley at Calder, I could see all the way around the track. Um, I knew that Bradley didn't like an understeer, like an oversteery car. He liked it with a little bit understeer in it. Not always the fastest way, but um, but that was the way it was. And so you watch what the car is doing. You you know you you can sort of get where it's at. The engineers now just look at squiggly lines on a screen. I don't, I don't necessarily understand that because the dynamics of the car and what's going on is, um, is a big part to play. And, and I think that has sort of come back into it a little bit. I think it would be even better if they didn't give them the data on Monday morning. Um, but it, it's not – everyone's not the same. And, and I tell this story when I do my little talks. Driving a V8 supercar – is a confidence thing, which most people don't get. They think to drive a car fast, you hold your foot flat on the throttle as long as you game, and then at the end you jump off and jump on the brakes and hopefully you slow, slow the shit fight down and go around the corner and then do the same again. It's not like that. We all go to a 40-storey building, hold hands and jump off. It'll be the most exciting thing ever done until you hit the ground. Might hurt then. <laughs> um, will everybody do that? No, they won't. But I say to you, okay, We'll get somebody to teach us to abseil down the side of this thing with the right equipment. Will you do it then? Nine out of ten will do it. But how do they know they're not going to end up in the same scenario? How do they know the equipment's not going to fail? How do they know they've listened to everything? And driving a race car is no different. There's a point when you go into free fall. And the closer you can get the driver to that point, the faster he will go. And how you achieve that is varying different ways. But you could take McLaughlin and put him in one of our cars he would be fast, but he probably wouldn't be as fast as Percat because there's little bits and pieces that you adjust to make that driver more comfortable so he's not in free fall. And that's why when somebody wins, for the next few races, they go a little bit better until they make a mistake or the car's not quite right or whatever it is. And unless you're in the inner circle and taking a long time to understand that part of it, um, you don't get it because it's great to sit back and watch and say, oh, you know, he's not having a go because he's not going deep enough into the corners or not accelerating early enough or whatever it be. It's not that simple. It's a very complex thing. And the cars are very complex. You know, the cars are much more complex than what they were. Our first production car, um, I did a story for another place the other day and, and we thought, go and buy a Mitsubishi Starion, which we bought put a roll cage in it, which we did, put numbers on it, which we did, 
go to Calder and run for their $100,000, got blown away, didn't we? And it wasn't until we got to Adelaide that we realised that we were probably about 20 pound down in boost and we didn't have the right brake pads in the car and, um, you know, people have been playing with roll centres and all sorts of things. So it sort of opens up a can of worms. Nothing's as simple as it looks. Nothing is ever as simple as it looks. That's a, that's a very motor racing thing, isn't it? Uh, we'll keep moving through a couple of quick questions. Uh, Matthew Davis asks, does Kim exercise his power in the team to change deliveries on Percat's car all the time so the manufacturers will make more models of BJR cars? Exactly. <laughs> the commercial aspect of the whole thing works as well. True. But if you made a model car for every one of the deliveries that Car8 has had in the last two or three years, that's a lot. That's a lot of model cars. Yes, but if Car8 didn't have all those liveries, it wouldn't be at the circuit. Correct, which is one of the reasons why we like it, because it keeps it there. Uh, another question here too, Dim. Um, the last question on our little list here is from a, I think he's a former BJR staff member, actually. Yeah, he, you may have heard of him, Kim. His name's John Bow, and he, uh, he saw our... He just wants a royalty. That's, he just wants a royalty. <laughs> That's all he's looking for. <laughs> well, he's asked the question... He'd like to know how much do you weigh now because he knew you when you raced Formula Fords and how long ago was that? Uh, well, I, I've actually lost a little bit of weight. So I'm lighter now than I've been in the last 20 years. So I'm only 100 kilos or 102 kilos. Um, <laughs> but um, I used to know him when he had hair. So if, that, if that's a comeback, that's, that, that's the way it is. But uh, look, JB is a great guy. We've, we've known each other for a long time. Um, it, the, the problem is he doesn't, he doesn't get any older or his, his license doesn't say he gets any older. Um, it, but it, it's, uh, <laughs> he, when he was working for us and we used to have to go and give a talk, he used to bring that up all the time. He said he knew me when I was skinny and I say, yeah, well, I knew you when you had hair. Um, but, but he's, uh, he's actually reaching out in this, in this current environment. He's got himself a dog and, um, I saw him the other day without a hat on, so it, it's it, it's quite good. He was riding a push bike at Albert Park, and um, but he but he's a great guy. But yeah, no, I've lost a little bit of weight. I did put some weight on there for a while. My wife's a very good cook. Yeah. <laughs> um, I reckon that's got us to the end of our questions, Dim. Uh, he survived quite well. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> I get that from my father. I can talk underwater with marbles in my mouth. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, one quick one before we let you go. If there's a model car that you would be needing to be um, saving first, if you could only keep one of what you've got, what's the car that you keep? And what's your holy grail that you're constantly searching for online or that you would really love to have? The one I would keep would be the Ferrari just because of the detail in it. And what year is that? What, what, what era? Is it's it? like a pre-war thing, like a front engine um, yeah. Ferrari. It's just the detail in it is amazing. What would be my Holy Grail car? I don't know. I've got a lot of nice, nice stuff. I, something that I have been getting lately is I've got Tomo's, they made a resin car at Tomo's, Tomo's Volksy and um, I worked on Joni's Camaro so I've got that um, Pete Gagan's um, Monaro I've got that um, and I've been getting some of those but they're all resin so um, 
I, I, look, I don't really have a holy grail, but I look all the time. What I do like is some of the old indie cars, um, the front engine ones and some of the early with no wings and big tyres type cars. But I don't, I don't really have a, I must have this. I just look around and find different bits and pieces and, and go, oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind that. And then I look at the price and I go, yeah, I don't really need it. <laughs> I, I got a lot of stuff anyway. <laughs> um, so it, it's, uh, it's funny how the different things, you know, since all this lockdown and stuff, I've been riding a push bike. And then keep in mind, I'm 64 and 100 kilos. So the push bike actually has a hernia every time I get on it. But away we go. There's a thing called Strava. And uh, so what that does is GPS and all your segments and bits and pieces and matches you against other people that are on Strava for the same age bracket and the same weight bracket. And uh, I get home and sit down and usually still sweating and carrying on, trying to have a heart attack, get my breath back. I look at my computer and my wife goes, what are you doing? You know where you've been. You know that you've been gone for an hour and a half. You probably know how fast you've gone because your phone tells you. So what are you doing? I said, well, I'm looking on Strava to see where I am in comparison to everybody else. And what's happened in the last couple of months is that I've gone from being 30th or 40th or 50th down to two or three. So what I do now is I look at the segment and I work out if I go slow for the, for the previous two segments and I can go really fast for that segment and then I can jump up the line a little. Um, but she doesn't get it. She said, you're an idiot. What are you doing? I'm like, but it's sort of competitive and I suppose that sums up our life. Once a racer, always a racer. There's a reason why it's called BJR because that's definitely the bit for racing. Hey, Kim, thanks so much for taking some time to chat today. Uh, we look forward to hearing about the new model acquisitions down the track and anything else that you've conjured up and hopefully there's a few more BJR cars left to be made. Thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. And it's nice to have another part of my life talked about. Thanks, guys. Thanks, heaps, mate. Cheers, Bye-bye. mate. See you soon. Great to have Kim Jones with us, Dim, on the podcast. Uh, let's turn our attention to uh, current stuff. What's just arrived uh, at Motor Focus up there in Queensland? Noons, we've, uh, we've had a, a bit of gear coming in again. So the anti of released a few of the 2019 supercars. So uh, Mark Winterbottom's Irwin Racing ZB Commodore, both in 118th and the 143rd scale. We've also got Nick Perkett's ZB Commodore from the Tasmania Super Sprint round. That's the Dunlop livery. And that's only in the 118th scale at this point in time. One of a million Brad Jones Racing number eight liveries from over the time. But that's the livery that's been working for them this year in terms of uh, winning a couple of races at Sydney Motorsport Park. So I reckon I've got a pretty good idea of which livery they'll make the 2020 car based on, but it's going to be another Dunlop one, I would say. Well, there's a very good chance of that, and, and so it should be. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great, another milestone for the team. Uh, we've also got Tim Slade's Freightliner Racing ZB Commodore from 2019. Now, that's only in the 143rd scale at this stage, but the, the 118th to come. Something for uh, the man that hasn't got a lot of hair anymore, John Bowes, DJR Sierra uh, from 1989, the touring car runner-up, 118th scale, and that's in the Apex brand, and only 270 of them uh, knocked out. Also, uh, something different for the truck guys, Drake Collectibles that we've mentioned uh, way back, uh, do real high-quality trucks. So... 
they've released a few more of their 150 scale Kenworth T900 Legend trucks in the Blanche Transport, Aylmore Transport, and the, for the first time they've done a New Zealand livery truck, and that's the North Chill Transport. No, 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 that's the North Chill Transport. Dumb, dumb. <laughs> that is the North Chill Transport. Exactly. Yeah, sorry, I, my pronunciation was, was not quite right there. Uh, other models that uh, I just want to mention that have come in recently, uh, Diecast Distributors Australia, they've uh, punched out a few of the 118 scale Ford XB GT sedans, so the four-door. Uh, now, they've released their first of the street machine versions, so it's, it's done in the metallic orange. It's... Uh, Got the chrome sort of pro wheels, blown motor, and uh, so something for people to check out on our website. Also from Greenlight, uh, the this year's Indy cars of Will Power and Scott Dixon. Now we've got them in the 118th and the 164 scale. So what I love about these models is it's the it's this year's new spec car with the aero screen, and they've done them with the oval wings. So. They're quite tiny compared to, you know, what they would run on, on a road course. So there are others that we've received recently. So if, if uh, it's a great idea always to jump on our website, we've got a new arrival section and we keep that up to date with all the new stuff that's um, hit our shelves. And, of course, don't forget you can join the Collectors Club, 5% discount across the board, which is fantastic. Uh, and postage from Motor Focus is just 10 bucks, no matter what you order, how much you order. Uh, that flat rate always is really handy when uh, customers and our fans are looking to add to their collection. Some new model announcements. Uh, the guys at Authentic Collectibles, Will Hall and the team, have been pretty busy in recent times. And when it comes to Mustangs, they've got plenty of announcements from last year. Yeah, they sure have. Uh, so big order form came through uh, last week. So starting off with um, Scotty McLaughlin's 2019 championship version, doing it in the 18th, 43rd and 64th scale. So just want to make a point that the 118th will come with a scale trophy that, that the winner gets and they're also going to do the, the posters that uh, they like to shake around and show off their achievements. So uh, it, it is a little different to the, the normal season car. So you know, the, the number will be orange on the windows. It's got a couple of slightly different decals, uh, but a nice one to add for the collection. And one of them, of course, is the Newcastle 500 decal on the side for distinguishing it being that event, being the, the final round of the championship, which sadly, no Newcastle in, in 2020. Hopefully we're back there in 2021. But um, some retro uh, Mustangs have been made from last year's Sandown 500 as well. Yeah, correct. So uh, Chaz Mostert's and, and James Moffat's uh, retro livery uh, from Sandown in 118th and 143rd scale. And I think that was sort of, would you say it was designed on uh, the Coke Mustang? Yeah, yeah. It was a, a red super cheap auto Mustang that I guess it probably is a dip of the lid, you'd say, really, to the to the Alan Moffat Coke Mustang. I, I, I'd sort of heard various stories during last year that, I think they were really keen to try to find a way to really make it a Coke Mustang, but that was kind of the compromise, obviously, a Moffat driving a red Mustang at Sandown 50 years since that famous 69 Trans Am car debuted. So, uh, and, and then the other car that's actually out in 18th and 43rd is the Milwaukee car. And, of course, Milwaukee and 23 Red are gone from the championship now. 
but the retro car that Will and Alex Davison drove at Sandown last year, which kind of, because Milwaukee didn't have really, you know, a previous racing involvement as a naming rights partner, there wasn't a livery from the 70s or the 60s or the 80s to base on. So they came up every year with something that looked a bit retro and was a bit different. And that's a, that's a standout car. It looks, looks pretty cool. Yeah, sure is. And we've had a lot of interest uh, in the Milwaukee cars full stop, even even the Falcons. So it's definitely one that uh, people should really, if they want one, get out there and pre-order it and uh, avoid missing out because I don't think they'll make a huge amount of them. Uh, the other two, two cool cars that Authentics have announced are the Erebus cars as driven at Townsville 400 last year. Now, so there's the Reynolds car and the De Pasquale car. These are a resin sealed model, but the livery on this one uh, was was the camouflage version uh, to support the army. Yeah, and that made it a real standout one-off. I know they've had the Kiss car and they've had some really cool uh, retro liveries that we've talked about, but they'll be a, a real standout. Erebus have done a really good job the last few years of mixing it up and providing those different liveries and different looks for their their, their partners and, and their fans as well. Uh, a couple of the other things that caught my eye from Authentic uh, Dim in the last week or so, obviously they will do uh, a 143rd twin set of McLaughlin's two championship winners, so the Falcon from 18 and the Mustang from 19, and they'll also do a team's champion twin set in 43rd of Scott and Fabian's Mustangs from last season. So there's plenty there for DJR Team Penske fans to get excited about. But if you're a bit more of an old-school DJR fan and you've got the 1980 Bathurst Dick Johnson John French Falcon XD, we talk all the time on this podcast about the additionals, the things you can put with your model cars, whether it be the trophies, whether it be uh, the the Wii One uh, posters, um, newspaper headline sheets from the old days at Bathurst. Uh, but Authentic and Dick Johnson Racing have come up with a replica of probably the most famous uh, rock in the history of the world. Yeah, you're right there. It's it's one of the most iconic uh, sort of memories of Australian motorsport and uh, the rock, as we refer to it, uh, that Dick Clouded, uh, they're going to make a half-scale replica of that rock. So uh, it's a little bit different, and but like you say, it'll look just spectacular alongside your model collection. As long as it's not uh, hitting your model and you don't make it totally lifelike from 40 years ago. Of course, this year's the 40th anniversary of that uh, famous incident at Mount Panorama in 1980. I know there's been a lot of people who've said, a replica of The Rock? Are you kidding me? Are they, are they pulling our leg? Is it April 1 at Authentic Collectibles? But I reckon for every person who might not think it's a good idea, I reckon there'll be two or three who absolutely will add that to their to their cabinet. What's your, what's your take been early? Yeah, look, there, there has been a, a little bit of uh, comments getting around about it, but, you know, it's not for everyone and, and nor, nor every model car is for everyone. So, you know, we've got... Uh, quite a few orders for the for the rock and um, you know so I, th- I think it's great and if uh, people want to add it to their collection it's it's going to be available for pre-order I wonder if they decide to do the Dick Johnson tree there'll be a question of which one from 1983 do you replicate because he mowed a few down on his way <laughs> in the yeah. at the time <laughs> yeah good idea maybe uh, maybe they're working on it as we speak Yes, you never know. You never know. Hey, we've got some listener questions to finish off with today, mate. Uh, Rob Thompson really enjoys the podcast. He's following the format. If you give us a plug, 
and say that you really like the podcast, we'll read the rest of the question and probably ask the question. Uh, he said he's um, uh, got a couple of questions. What do you see is the future of diecast collecting and people's collections with the uncertainty of supercars and Holden pulling out? And is the Larry Perkins collection still part of Bianchi Model Cars too? Yeah, well, look, it's great to see uh, Rob right into his collecting and, and um, getting amongst it there. Uh, look, as far as, you know, the uncertainty with supercars, we'll always want models of whatever they're racing. And there'll always be, you know, the highest level of motorsport in Australia and the best drivers in something. So, you know, we'll just have to wait and see what, what um, the commercial world comes up with. But... I don't think there's going to be a problem with, with models going forward for the series. Uh, look, look at the past. You know, we've had Mercedes models. We've had the Nissan. So I think we'll be okay. Uh, we just got to wait and see what, the, what, what uh, comes in the future. Uh, I gave a quick call to Richard from Bianchi about the Larry Perkins collection, and it, it is still something that's happening. Uh, they're just kind of working on more cars, in the program and hopefully some announcements in the near future. All right. We'll keep an eye on that one. Uh, Nathan Mortimer with the next question. Uh, he said he should have got this in uh, when we did have Richard Poole um, from Bianti uh, on the program. Uh, what was that? Our, our last episode or two. Um, but he says that the one twelfth scale is getting more popular with collectors and would any of the companies consider making one twelfth models of some of the older supercars that were quite popular, whether it be Marcus Ambrose's Stones car or the, the Lowndes Wing Cup Bathurst winner from 2006. He says that people would go crazy having a larger model in the cabinet. I reckon they would. What do you think? Yeah, look, thanks for the uh, question, Nathan. And I, I think it's a great idea. Uh, you know, they don't have to do every car, but like you say, pick the special ones. And uh, with the 112 scale, seems like they're able to do a lot lower runs you know, even down to 20 pieces. So, you know, I think it's a great idea and, and hopefully um, we, we know the guys that make these decisions do listen to the podcast. So, you know, this is what they need to hear and uh, let's hope that we see some, some action in the future. Uh, I would just love to see the 2006 Bathurst winner done in 112. That's, I'll be the first to pre-order that one. I've got a funny feeling you won't be... Uh, the only one either. I think there'll be a pretty big lineup of, of people to follow through with that. Uh, keep the questions rolling in. Keep sending them via uh, Motorfocus's social media page on Facebook and through the website as well. We get uh, plenty of them every week uh, for us to run on the podcast every fortnight. We've cut them back a little bit this time around because we did have uh, Kim Jones with us to, to have a chat on this edition of the podcast. We also have our secondhand market. That'll be back in future editions and we'll take a closer look at some of the different topics and um, I guess themes, drivers, cars, eras uh, that, that make up the secondhand market. We've only really scratched the surface with that in previous episodes. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, we've got a back catalogue now of a few to go back and have a listen to. Some of the Q&As will give you some great insight. Our chat with Richard Poole previously as well from Bianchi Model Cars too. So plenty to go back through. We're building momentum all the time. Subscribe. Tell your friends about it in the model collecting world because it's a podcast that Every fortnight we'll be dropping a few celebrity guests. And I think we've got another one coming up somewhere soon down the track, do we not, Dim? Yeah, you're right there, Aaron. Uh, someone that's been heavily requested. And um, Will Hall from Authentic Collectibles 
has agreed to uh, join us in a few weeks' time. All right. So uh, for all of our listeners, I've got some questions for, for Will and all things model cars and authentic. Of course, he was at Bianti for a long time. He spent some time working for Brad Jones Racing uh, in Albury in a, in a media role as well. So plenty of questions to ask him. So keep them flowing through to the Motor Focus social media accounts and, and, and the website as well. Of course, uh, Dim, this is the bit where you tell everyone the address of the shop if you want to stop in and grab a, a bargain from Motor Focus. Where do they find you? Well, look, we'd love to see as many people drop in. Uh, so we're at Unit 9, number one Stockwell Place, Archerfield. And uh, always get us on www.motorfocus.com.au. Good little plug there. Sounds like you own a shop. You're really good at this stuff, huh? Well, I'm learning. Yeah, you're going well. Hey, everyone, thanks again for listening to us. That is the Motor Focus Model Podcast. For another edition, click back and go through our previous episodes. In the meantime, though, thanks again for listening. We'll join you next time in a fortnight's time.